Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. Take your Bibles to Romans 14 this evening. Romans 14, where this series is coming from. We'll probably make our way at some point in this series, probably four, uh, five or six weeks of a series, and we'll make our way to 1 Corinthians 8 as well, and possibly Romans 15, but mainly here in Romans 14, and where we were a few weeks ago on week number one of this, the introductory week of this series. Some of you may remember a news, a big news story with fear and concern in the early 2000s about mad cow disease. Anybody remember that? It was on the news and, and, uh, and newspapers. And in February of 2001, Time Magazine had a cover article about fears uh, of what was called mad cow disease that was spreading in Europe. And uh, the month after that, Newsweek ran a cover story on the same issue. And two years later, in 2003, this particular infection had made its way to an American cow, and fear began to spread even more. And I did a little bit of, as I was reading through this a little bit, just maybe a half an hour or something over the last week or two, kind of studying the history of it. Um, It it ended up where certain countries wouldn't import uh, beef from America, and we wouldn't import from from Britain and some of those things, and more than four million head of cattle were slaughtered because of this worldwide, because of the fears. It had great impact on our, uh, the food supplies and on on these cattle farms and people's businesses and and all of those things. And and, uh, other safeguards were implemented. Why? Because of the potential damage that mad cow disease spreading from one cow to another could have on the health of our country. And thankfully, relatively few Americans were ever diagnosed with or died from this terrible disease, but for those that did, it was terrible and painful, and for those that did die, of course, deadly. And three weeks ago, I began a series that you see on the slides there entitled Sacred Cows, Finding Biblical Unity even when we disagree. And I, I chose those wor- that, that word especially on purpose, that um, adjective there, biblical unity. This is not a series about unity at all costs. I said in the first week, doctrine divides. And so this is not a series about finding unity at all costs and and just appeasing culture and and not standing for anything. And we talked about that, and we'll talk a little bit about that tonight, but we talked about that much in week number one. It's finding biblical unity. You see, sometimes I fear, depending on maybe the church you were brought up in or what, what, what your kind of experience is or your family's perspective, sometimes we view unity as a bad word. Unity is almost, it's a sign of compromise. If we're getting along with everybody, something must be wrong. Well, unity is a biblical word. God tells us, and we're going to see this tonight, God tells us to seek it. God tells us to embody those things, but finding biblical unity even when we disagree. The, The title of the first message was, what is your baby cow's name? What is your baby cow's name? Because here's the reality, we all have them, don't we? And we'll get to that in a minute. Tonight's message is entitled, what I just talked about, Mad Cow Disease. That's the title of the message this evening is Mad Cow Disease. And 
I've had this message title and this opening illustration of those, uh, those magazine covers planned for weeks. And uh, as I studied a little bit about the disease in preparation, I knew that over the last 20 years, only six Americans had passed away from that strain that Time and Newsweek were talking about. Well, last night, uh, we were at a meal with some uh, dear members in our church, and uh, we were there, and and one of the the sweet ladies said, uh, she said to me, she said that we were talking about the messages today, about this morning's message and tonight's message, and she said, I'm loving your Sacred Cows series. And I said, oh, well, tomorrow night, and I thought, oh, it's kind of an interesting title. I said, tomorrow night, the message title is Mad Cow Disease, to which she immediately said, my dad died of that. That was what I thought, too. Oh, no, what am I doing? And then she kind of started, I I thought she was joking because I knew that the numbers were kind of small. I thought it was, she kind of laughed when she said it. I thought it was kind of a joke at first. And, And I said, oh, really? She said, yes. I said, well, then I guess I'm not preaching that. I have to go home and study and get a new message. She said, no, no, Pastor, it's okay. It was, and and she, ta- she actually taught us a little bit about it and talked about her dad's story and what a wonderful man that he was. But it was a reminder of, of this thing that is in our, that, that, that lived, that was deadly. And the spiritual application that we're going to find today is, is that this idea of our sacred cows can bring a deadly poison to our churches. What are the chances that the person I'm eating with the night before I had had this title for several weeks would tell me those things and would tell me that, but, but she said, don't, don't worry about that and, and go ahead and preach that. But right before tonight, we were talking about this and a reminder of the seriousness of this issue from a spiritual perspective. By way of review, before we jump in to our passage tonight, a few things from our introductory message. Uh, I, I mentioned the first, uh, the first week, as I see it. As I study history and study God's Word, I believe the two greatest threats to the church today and throughout history are doctrinal compromise and disunity among Christians. I believe that the two greatest threats to the church today and throughout history are doctrinal compromise and disunity among Christians. You find it in Scripture. Nearly every New Testament letter that Paul wrote, he addressed this in some way about seeking to have uh, unity, about loving one another, about uh, Yodius and Syntyche, stop fighting with each other, I'm begging them, don't divide the church as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Almost every local church mentioned in the New Testament had divisions to contend with. You'll see it addressed in almost every letter. A church must guard against doctrinal compromise, that's in almost every letter, and disunity. So we must stand true for the purity of the faith once delivered to the saints. Paul made this clear when he said, if any man preach another gospel, let him be accursed. He said those that preach false gospel, a false gospel, false doctrine, mark and avoid, we must stand firm in our doctrine, and it must be supported by Scripture. Just this past week, a video began circulating of a, of a pastor of one of our nation's largest non-denominational churches. Uh, uh, he's, many, many of you maybe have heard of him, probably at some point maybe many in this room have read books. He's a, he's a gifted communicator, um, pastors one of the largest churches in the country uh, located in the South. And Somewhere last year at a conference, he began to talk, and in these videos that went out basically affirming uh, a homosexual lifestyle and how we as a church ought to give people living in that lifestyle places of service, he made a statement this week where he said, uh, gay Christians, not, not Christians that struggle with same-sex attraction or, and have repented of that, or not Christians that, that are seeking victory in an area of their lives, but those that are living in that lifestyle, he said, I heard it with my own ears, he said, they have more faith 
than I do and many in this church do. And, and it's been, articles have been written this week, and people are going back and forth, and those that think he's right and those that think he's wrong. The reality is that any, any form of physical relationship outside of a heterosexual marriage is a perversion of God's plan for the physical relationship. And we as pastors, and he, he said, oh, I know Romans 1, and I know, and he called them, what he called them were clobber passages. I know the passages we, we clobber uh, those that are living those over the head with. I, I know those, those are fun passages to talk about, but we need to rethink these things as a church. Well, no, doctrinal compromise is not the answer to reaching the next generation. We must stand true and firm for the truth of Scripture, no matter where culture lands. Along with our stand on biblical truth, I said uh, a few weeks ago, every church must also guard against ungodly division, critical spirits, and petty infighting over issues that are neither commanded nor forbidden in Scripture. So we must stand true for doctrinal purity, for doctrinal correctness, but we also must make sure that we are not uh, dividing unnecessarily with wrong spirits over things that are neither commanded nor forbidden in Scripture. And Romans 14 shows us that believers in the same church sometimes can have really strong opinions about things that are neither commanded nor forbidden in Scripture. And it tells us how to navigate those things in our lives and in our church families and even in our own personal families. It saddens me when I see even, even Christian families with adult children that maybe have chosen to do some things differently, whatever, and, and, and they cannot figure out ways to find biblical unity even within their own biological families because they, they're one side or the other is holding so strongly to what I would call their sacred cows. We talked about a few weeks ago, there are dangers on both sides of this. There's a danger in our lives and in our churches when we elevate our personal preferences to the level of doctrine. And the danger there is then we unnecessarily divide with good people over things that the Bible does not command us to divide over. But there's a danger on the other side where we lower doctrine to the level of personal preference. And this is where we get the woke theology of just live your truth. Everything is a personal preference. You do you. There is no your truth and there is no my truth. There is only the truth. And so there's a danger on both sides of this where we, we elevate our preference to the level of doctrine or we lower Bible doctrine to the level of our preference. And there's a danger that can destroy a church and, and, and a family of God on both sides of those. For this series, we talked about a little bit of the history of the term sacred cow. For this series, I defined a sacred cow as this, a strongly held personal preference that is neither commanded nor forbidden in Scripture. So if it's commanded or forbidden in Scripture, it's not up for debate. God's Word is God's Word, and whether we like it or not, whether culture likes it or not, whether the church down the street likes it or not, whether the, uh, the, my coworker likes it or not, if it's commanded or forbidden in Scripture, it's not up for debate. We, we can't land in different places and be, be true to the Word of God. But those things where they might be personal practices or personal beliefs or strongly held personal standards that are neither commanded nor forbidden in Scripture, but it's a place where I've landed, maybe based on my personal upbringing, 
Maybe based on my background, maybe based on my family of origin, maybe whatever it might be, those things where I hold strongly, as they did in Romans 14, to certain personal practices or even spiritual practices or preferences, in those things where where there can be some areas for folks to differ, those are what we define as our sacred cow. In the first message, I showed us that we all have our own pet cows, and here's the thing, I didn't tell you to get rid of them. It's okay. Romans 14 was dealing with people that were saved, um, Romans, pagans, Gentiles that were saved, and then it was dealing with Jews that were saved out of Judaism. They had different church upbringings. They had different traditions they had grown up with. They had different things that they held very tightly. And some of them were were okay with eating meat that had been offered to idols because they realized that's just a dead idol, so it's good steak. I'm going to go ahead and eat it. And others, their conscience would not allow them to eat meat offered to idols because they had been saved out of pagan worship. And Paul said, Paul said, we know there's nothing wrong with that meat. I've got no problem eating that meat. The, the, The idol didn't do anything to it. That idol's dead. So let's not let it go to waste. Don't let a good state go to waste. But Paul said, I understand there are people that for good reason, based on how they were brought up, their conscience does not allow them to eat that same meat that I'm fine with eating. And he said, how do we, and here's here's the interesting thing. He didn't tell one side or the other to start doing what the other side did. He did not demand uniformity. He encouraged unity. He didn't say, Sammy, you're not okay eating meat, and I am. You need to start eating meat. And he didn't say, you're not okay eating meat, I I am, I need to stop eating meat. Now, he did say at times, if I know it will offend, and I'll talk about this probably next Sunday night, if I know it will offend a brother in Christ, I'll limit my liberty so that I'm not a stumbling block to someone else. But he didn't tell either side. Then there were some that that they uh, celebrated the Jewish festivals and holidays and feasts, and they thought it was really important. And those others that came out, they had never grown up um, celebrating Passover or these other things. And and, and they said, if you're going to be a good Christian, you've got to recognize these these traditional holidays. And and then there were other people saying, every day is unto the Lord. These things don't matter. That's not how I was brought up. I didn't go to a church that celebrated those. And here's what Paul said. He didn't say, start doing the same thing. He didn't say, get rid of your sacred cows. He said, get along in spite of them. Get along in spite of your sacred cows. So we talked about that Tonight I want us to see that while it's okay to have some strongly held opinions or beliefs on certain sacred cows, we have to be careful that we don't allow those to poison the body of Christ. Things that we like, that we prefer, that we feel strongly about because of our upbringing, our personal experiences, even our religious traditions. We have to be careful if if we do not, if they are not strongly supported in Scripture, it doesn't mean it's wrong for us to, to allow them and to do them. And, and we talked, I talked about a bunch of different ones in, in, on, on the first week where I know good Christians that differ in areas of practice on a bunch of different things, that they're not right or wrong in Scripture. And Paul said, who's right? Yes, both are. So tonight, the challenge is don't let your sacred cow turn into a mad cow that destroys a healthy spirit in you and a healthy spirit of unity in your church. Tonight, I want want to remind us about the deadly effects of allowing our sacred cows to become mad cows that damage and divide the church and divide us from other good Christians and other good churches who have different sacred cows than us. Why? Because you see, discord and disunity is a debilitating poison in the body of Christ. It's a debilitating poison to the body of Christ. Look at Romans chapter 14, verse number 1. 
Would you read verse number one aloud with me? Romans 14, verse one. Ready? Begin. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. Verse two, aloud please. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Verse three, would you read it aloud? Ready, begin. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Here's the interesting thing, both in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, Paul actually describes the the believer that feels they have to have more rules to keep them right as being the weaker brother. That one that that, that, that does not have liberty in certain areas, he says they're a weaker brother, but here's what he says. He said, if you have liberty in an area that another brother does, don't despise that one. And here's what happens. Those that have liberty look down on those that don't and say, man, they're so spiritually immature. They, they, they don't really understand the Bible. They're so, they're, they're so old-fashioned. They're this, they're that. And, and those that maybe have liberty in an area can despise those that don't. And Paul said, that's not a, a pleasing spirit of Christ. And then he said, those that, that don't have liberty in an area, they can look at those that do, and they can judge them. Look at that carnal person. God could never use someone like that. They don't have all the same rules I have, and, and they, don't, they don't do all the exact same things I do, and they judge them and look and say, and he says later on, why do you set at not your brother? You, you literally push away your brother because he doesn't have all the exact same preferences that you do. He says, don't let that happen, church family. One believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs only. He said, don't despise and don't judge. Don't despise him that eateth not, and don't judge uh, him that eateth. For God hath received him. Number one, I'm going to give us four thoughts tonight in our message. Number one, recognize that differences in the family of God are unavoidable. Differences in the family of God are unavoidable. Just like Differences in your family of two people in a marriage are unavoidable. You're not going to bring hundreds of people together for any length of time in a family that comes from different backgrounds and different upbringings and different church uh, traditions, if you will, and different parts of the country and different careers and different personalities and different giftings. And you're not going to bring all of those people together and not have a wide variety of personal preferences and practices. I gave you a few uh, humorous illustrations the first week. I remember the first Sunday that I was here, uh, not the first Sunday, the first Easter that I was here. I grew up in a church. I've only been a member of two churches. I told you this three weeks ago. I was saved um, in my home church in Northern California, where my, uh, my father-in-law, my wife's dad, has been the pastor for 46 plus years. That's the only church I was reached there. My mom and I were reached there when I was nine years old. I was there until I finally had to grow up and leave home uh, in my mid-30s when I came down here to pastor. And I was there for 20-some years. It was never—I I told you about—they put up Christmas trees, they decorated for Christmas, never a thing. I didn't realize there were churches and Christians that thought that was a pagan symbol. And, and again, there might be some sitting in this room that you don't put up a Christmas tree in your home. I, I remember the first Easter I was here at our home church, we would always do a huge Easter egg hunt. We would have thousands of eggs, and my mom would do Easter eggs around the house, and I would do—and I had no idea that there were blog posts and podcasts and this and that. And, and since then, I have studied a little bit of it, and I've looked into it, and for me personally, I have no problem with having a little fun with holidays, and I don't think that by, by getting some jelly beans and a plastic egg that we're worshiping the God of fertility, I don't, I don't think that that's, for me, I don't, again, I'm not trying to make light, for me it's not a problem, but I remember 
the first Easter I was here, and the church had had Easter egg hunts before I got here, so we just kept doing what we had done. And someone met me in the lobby and wanted to send me a long thing, did you know, and I'm very offended that you would do this, and this is not celebrating the resurrection. And by the way, I'm not saying this to judge or condemn them. They feel very strongly. Now, as I studied it, I personally do not see a biblical prohibition about the Spirit and what we do for that. But it was a reminder that good people can differ. And what's funny is, whatever we're used to, we think somebody else isn't used to is really weird. But whatever we're not used to, and they're able to do it, we look at them like, and what do we say? We have found the perfect spot, right? We have found the perfect position. I think I told you a pastor friend of mine was speaking at a pastor's conference on, on contextualizing your ministry, meaning making sure that your, your ministry um, is able to, to reach the area in which you live. And in uh, and, and our church, um, just contextualizing, you, we're in Newport Beach, California. We're not in Mexico. We're not in Africa. We're not, and there are different cultures and different climates and different traditions in all of those places. So it wouldn't make sense for me to celebrate some some, um, some holiday from Peru um, here in Orange County. Nobody here celebrates that holiday. Contextualizing, and this pastor said, he said, the, 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 the pastor that does less things than I have liberty to do, he is under-contextualized. The pastor that has more liberty than I have to do some things, he's over-contextualized. He said, I am perfectly contextualized. And we all feel that way, don't we? Wherever we're at, we've kind of found the perfect spot. Paul says here, recognize differences in the family of God are unavoidable. You can't attend a church of any size for any length of time without disagreeing with people on a variety of issues. At times, you may even disagree with the church leadership and decisions that are made on any number of things. Paul told them this is going to happen, and Paul also said God is okay with that. Look at verse number five. One man esteemeth one day over above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. This is a personal thing for you. You don't need to convince someone else. You don't need to change them. You need to don't go against your conscience and, and don't go there, but don't hold other people to your conscience either. Don't bind their consciences to yours. He says in verse 6, he that regardeth the day, look at this, regardeth it unto the Lord. God is okay with it, and he's doing it for God because that's what he really believes he should do. And he that regardeth not the day, to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, and he giveth God thanks. Thank you for this meat that was offered to idols. And he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. Thank you for saving me out of a life of idol worship. They both eat or don't eat and give God the glory. I don't know about you, but that wasn't always my spirit as a Christian, that I can do some things a little bit differently, or some other people might do some things a little differently than me, and God is okay with them. Everyone needs to be exactly like me. And Paul said, no. He said, I I'm not calling for uniformity, I'm calling for biblical unity. Why? Because we need a healthy body, and when our sacred cows turn into mad cows, they poison the body. Verse number two, verse number two, realize the damage that comes from mishandling differences. We're going to see Paul talks a lot about this in 1 Corinthians 8, but it was a, it's a good day when we, re, we realize that every person that is my spiritual brother or sister is not going to look and sound exactly like me. I said this a few weeks ago, we don't have to be twins to be brothers. Now we do have to be brothers to be brothers. 
We have to be saved in the same family, trusting the same Savior, reading the same Bible. We have, we have to believe the same truths. We, we do have to be brothers to be brothers, but we don't have to be twins to be brothers. God allows for some differences. You know that churches in, in, in the holler, I've been there in the country side of, of Alabama, look different than churches in the heart of New York City that look different than churches in, in Seattle, Washington that look different from a church in West Virginia that look different from a church in Southern California. And who's right? If they're, not, if they're not disregarding Scripture and scriptural principle, the answer is yes. Rejoice if the gospel is preached. Look what he says, verse number 10. Realize the damage that comes from mishandling differences. Look at verse number 10. But why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set it not thy brother? Re- literally to make him of no effect, to put him on the shelf is the picture there. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. What, what is one of the dangers of mishandling differences? One of the dangers is we separate unnecessarily. And we have no, we we don't encourage, we don't have any fellowship with somebody because they do something where their choir wears robes and ours doesn't. Or they don't have a choir and we do. So I can't talk to that pastor because we know the Bible said thou shalt have a choir. That's, That's right there in the New Testament. No, that's not right there in the New Testament anywhere. In fact, the Bible has very little to say about church music in the New Testament. We'll get there a little later in this series on that subject. What, what that is, it's part of tradition. It's part of our, we, I love it. I love our choir. I want our choir to continue to thrive and to grow. I, I love it. I love a choir. I'm used to choir. The only churches, this one in my home church I've ever been a part of, have had a choir every Sunday. But there might be a church that can't have a choir. And when we... When we mishandle differences, we hurt the cause of Christ. In a ministry group that I'm a part of, a few thousand ministry workers, there was a missionary, he had a great spirit, he came on just in the last month and he posted, and he said, he said, would you please, and he was not bad-mouthing, in fact, he praised the church, said it's a wonderful pastor and he, he respects his decision to do this. He said, would you just pray for our family? We've lost $325 of our monthly support because one of our supporting pastors, uh, we've lost the piano player that we had. We have no instrumentalists in our church. I forget what country he's in. And so we needed, so we, we didn't need, we wanted some background music for our, our congregational singing. So we were playing some instrumental music on a CD or something of that nature so that we, kind of like a piano that we could have, that we weren't just only singing a cappella. And a pastor, I don't know the pastor, I don't know the church, he didn't name them somewhere in the States, found out about that and said, we can no longer partner for the sake of the gospel because we don't think you should be using pre-recorded music. Now, if that's that, again, if that's that pastor's sacred cow in his church, I'm not going to despise him or judge him. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, but I hate to hear that, in my opinion, there was some unnecessary division that affects the cause of Christ and getting the word of the, the Lord out around the world because we didn't quite understand how to recognize and, and realize the damage that comes. Look at verse number 13. What's another effect of mishandling differences? Verse 13, he says, let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. He said in and of itself, the stuff we're talking about is not sinful, but if your conscience won't allow it, then it is sinful. 
Verse 15, but if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably, destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. What happens when we mishandle our differences? Not only do we separate from each other unnecessarily, but we hurt others unnecessarily because we insist on forcing our preferences on another. He said, if you have liberty here and this person doesn't, Don't shove it down their throat. Show some charity. Show some grace. Because you could become a stumbling block to that person. By mishandling your differences, you could hurt another believer, either causing them to stumble or causing them to doubt, maybe even God's word, causing them to doubt things that, whatever it might be. And he says, if he's grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably, destroy not him with thy meat. What is he saying? Don't make that a hill to die on if that's going to hurt another. You have liberty in this area and he doesn't. Don't make that a hill to die on. I, I like, I heard one pastor read one time in a book or something, he said, I, I don't want to die on any hills that don't look like Calvary. I like that idea, just making sure that what it is, that the hills that we're dying on, and there are some hills worth dying on, by the way. And in our society, I think we're a little more on the other side of, there's no hill worth dying on, just let it all go, let everything happen. There are some hills worth dying on, but make sure the hills we're dying on look a little bit like Calvary. Look a little bit like what Jesus died for and what he gave his life for and what he gave us, teaching us to observe all things. And what's another effect that comes from mishandling differences? Verse 20, notice what it says. Would you read verse 20 aloud with me? Ready? Begin. For meat, destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. Again, he says, the preferences you're, you're, you're fighting over, you're not wrong to have liberty in them. But here's what he says. He says this, he says, don't hurt the work of God unnecessarily over your differences. For for me, destroy not the work of God. For me, destroy not your brother. For me, destroy not the work of God. Don't, Don't divide with good people unnecessarily over these things that we hold very strongly. Don't hurt others unnecessarily because we insist on forcing our preferences on them. And don't hurt the work of God unnecessarily. Paul's telling them here, these Roman Christians, he's saying you're missing out on so much joy, love, and gospel impact because you insist on judging, despising, gossiping, separating, and condemning those who land a little differently than you do on some areas. And and here's the reality, church family, I want to say this tonight, I want you to listen carefully, please. We cannot be focused on our disagreements with brethren and our commission from our Father at the same time. We cannot be focused on disagreements with our brethren and our commission from our Father at the same time. It's not possible. When our focus is on drama, discord, and division, it will automatically impact our gospel witness. We cannot fight the enemy and fight each other. We can only fight one or the other. And I don't know about you, but but we need every true believer that we can, and missionaries understand this often a little better than we do, we need every believer that we can find. We need one another. The the church, the, the church in America, Christianity in America at this point, and I'm praying God will do something, but it is not, you study any statistic, it is not a revival happening in Christianity in America. Our numbers are not increasing. Now there are pockets and churches and places where God is at work, but overall as a culture, we're not getting closer 
to the things of God. We need each other, and yet we, we sit there fighting with each other and condemning each other and criticizing each other while the world goes to hell. We need one another, and we cannot fight the enemy and our brother at the same time. I saw this illustrated in a 30-second video of lions this week. I don't know why I have lion videos going on. I rarely show videos in my messages, and today, and probably what will never, may, probably has never happened in a church ever again, somebody watching might divide with me. I hate it when pastors show videos of lions. In uh, something that has probably never happened before, and probably will never happen again, both morning and evening messages are going to have a short 20 to 30-second video of lions. But I saw this video this week. And, and, and it's, it, what it shows, it shows lions that were working together for the same cause all of a sudden start bickering. And watch what happens when that which they were unified for themselves, when they started fighting with each other over this little piece of buffalo, watch what happens. Let's go ahead and play that. Now, that was a great day to be a water buffalo. <laughs> How many churches look like this? Seriously. At one time, we were focused on, we've got a, a, a shared cause together. We've got, a, we've got an enemy to fight. We've got something we're working for together. And then all of a sudden, somebody takes our little piece of the buffalo, and all of a sudden, our eyes turn toward that one that at one time we were fighting with, and now we're fighting against. And, and because they did something a little differently, and he took a bite, there was plenty of meat for all five or six of those lines. They all would have had a wonderful meal if they could have learned how to get along there. But because one tried to take a little bit of that, 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 that strip portion, the New York portion, and the other one got a little filet and he wanted the porterhouse, they started fighting with each other. And how many churches at one time were working together for the sake of the gospel, and they've lost sight of their purpose, and they begin bickering with one another, they begin fighting with one another, they begin attacking one another, and while they do, that which they were at one time fighting with each other for walks away and lives to see another day. Satan loves it when Christians turn their, their, their energy and their efforts and their weapons on one another. We stop focusing on our shared cause because we're too busy fighting each other over our little piece of the buffalo, and the opponent wins. We saw it this morning, every mighty work of God in Acts, and every explosion and multiplication of the gospel in the early church was preceded by words like unity, all, all, one accord, all things common, that in, in living peaceably, endeavoring to keep uh, the unity and the, the bond of peace. When a body is unified, it is healthy, and a healthy body or church in the power of God is unstable. Unstoppable. Don't let our sacred cows turn into a mad cow that poisons the body of Christ. It will do more damage to you and to the work of God than you can ever imagine. Number three, number three, rejoice that God uses those with differences. Look at verse number one, him that is weak in the faith, look at what he says here, receive ye, receive ye. You, 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 you can't do what he does or you're, you're fine doing stuff, he's not okay, receive ye. Have the right spirit toward each other. Love, don't be uncharitable toward each other. Love each other. Work together. We're on the same team. What did Paul say in Philippians? I, I read the whole passage a few weeks ago. What did he say? If the gospel be preached, I rejoice, yea, I will rejoice. 
Now again, if the gospel's not being preached, I'm not rejoicing. This isn't hold hands with every person that says they are a person of faith and sing Kumbaya. This is not let's have people that worship Buddha and Islam and pray to Mary and do all of these things. Let's all get them up here on the platform so that we can reach the world for Christ. No, the Bible says if any man preaches another gospel, let him be accursed. But often, now there are some people that that's their problem, but often that's not our problem. Our problem is not that we're joining hands together with those that don't uh, believe the same gospel that we do. The problem is we won't join hands with those that do believe the same gospel that we do. This is why we must know our Bible. This is why we must be guided by scriptural truth, not, not, not personal selfish preferences. We have to know the right people to mark and avoid, and the right people to rejoice with and cheer on. Sadly, we sometimes mark and avoid those we should be rejoicing with, and we rejoice with those we should mark and avoid. We must have godly discernment. Aren't you glad that God can use people with different personalities and experiences and quirks and personal preferences that are different than me and different than you? If God only used people exactly like me in every way, there wouldn't be a whole lot of Christian ministry happening around the world. Rejoice that God can use all of us in spite of us. None of us are worthy. Only he is worthy. You see verse number four? Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. What is he saying? My my father-in-law would say it this way. He would say when he was growing up, he had a twin sister, and then he had an older sister. He grew up with two sisters. And he would come and he would tattle on his sisters to his dad, and his dad, part of the greatest generation, um, born close to 100 years ago now, I guess, and, and his dad would say to him, Jack, keep your own backyard clean. Jack, you've got enough in your own life to worry about. Quit worrying about your sisters. And can I say, and again, this doesn't mean we don't stand for anything. This doesn't mean we don't take strong, I'm going to talk about that next Sunday night. This doesn't mean that we, we just, if you don't stand for anything, you'll, if you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. This does not, don't misinterpret me. Oh, pastor's, pastor's trying to, 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 to lower all of our doctrine. No, I'm trying to get us to have the Spirit of Christ as we move forward for the sake of the gospel. And, and, and you know what Paul's telling them here? He's not telling them, people sometimes say, the Bible says judge not. Well, the Bible also says to discern all things. And we like to say, judge not, so that I can keep living in my sin. The Bible says discern all things. But what is he saying here when he says in verse 4, who art thou that judgest another man's servant? God is in control of that believer. That believer is going to stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ. That pastor is going to stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ. When was the last time for, for us that we remembered that truth in our own lives? And what is Paul basically saying? Roman Christians, keep your own backyard clean. God can take care of those differences, and if you're right and they're wrong, God is plenty powerful enough to take care of those things. They're going to answer to him, keep your own backyard clean, number four, and we're done. Resolve to handle differences with grace and maturity. Would you look at verse number 19, please? Let's read verse number 19 aloud together. Ready? Begin. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. Paul said, therefore, because of the fact that the work of God is so much bigger than your upbringing and your religious traditions and what you can eat or what you can't eat and the holidays you do celebrate or the holidays you don't celebrate, the work of God is so much bigger than that. Here's what he says. Let us therefore follow after things which make peace because we can't fight the enemy and our brother at the same time. The buffalo gets up and walks away. He says here, resolve to handle differences with grace and maturity. 
Sadly, and I'm thankful in our church, there's been a wonderful spirit of unity the time that I've been here. But I've been in ministry for now uh, going on 23 years in about two weeks. I've seen emails and, and conversations and interactions and social media things between believers that would make your skin crawl, filled with vitriol and anger, accusation and condemnation, even questioning salvation over things like they didn't like the, the song that a soloist chose, they didn't like the, the, a certain decision that was done for, for this meeting or that event or whatever it might have been, some petty conflict. What did Paul write just a couple chapters earlier in Romans chapter number 12? What did Paul say, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with how many men? With all men. That's the Spirit of Christ. As much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Now, by the way, I think that that shows us there are some times where it's just not going to lie in you. It's just not going to be possible. But that should be the exception, not the rule, when we're talking about other believers. Paul and Barnabas, they came to a place, they just couldn't work together anymore. I don't think, I think that's descriptive, not prescriptive. I don't think that's an answer of, well, everybody I don't like, I'm just not going to work with them anymore. I think that was just a reality that Paul and Barnabas were men of like passions like we. And they came to a place that they could no longer serve together in ministry. But do you know what happened when they no longer, the Bible says that they parted ways. By the way, Barnabas was the one that was a little more grace-filled there, a little more believing. He believed, let's give a second chance. And Paul was like, I'm done with that guy. Paul was a little bit of a hard nose there on that specific situation. And you know what the Bible tells us? They both went and they continued to preach the gospel. And nowhere in Scripture, after their, their parting, nowhere in Scripture do we get even a hint from either one of them criticizing the other. Nowhere. There is no talking or demeaning, and in fact, the one that Paul didn't want to work with, remember John Mark? Later in the Bible, we're told that God brought him back and used him greatly. We're kind of told that Barnabas was right. This guy still, it was valuable to the work of God. But nowhere after that, that division, did it happen? Yes, but it didn't define their lives. It didn't define their ministries. It didn't define their writings. What happened? I believe Paul and Barnabas, although I don't know that, I I think it might have been even better if they'd been able to work in harmony, but because they were not able to, I believe they learned to deal with that with grace and humility. Paul and Peter. What happened? Peter, uh, the, the, the preacher to the Jews. Paul, the preacher to the Gentiles. Peter, in some ways, I, I don't, that's a little bit of a strong word, a prejudice, I don't want to use the word racist, but there were some things with Paul that he, he, he looked down on some of those for a season that didn't hold to the Jewish rules. And Paul, who was a leader in the Jewish religion, knew all the traditions, he came and said, Peter, what are you doing? And the Bible tells us they withstood each other to the face. There came a place of confrontation between these two mightily used men of God, these two disciples, these two apostles, these two followers of Christ. But you know what we see later on in Peter's writings? You know what he calls Paul? My beloved brother. You know what he says? He says, go read the letters my beloved brother has written you. Oh, there are times where it's not going to lie in us to live peaceably with all men. There will be some times because we're fallen, we're sinful, some of us are stubborn. Anybody like your pastor? You're a little stubborn. Don't raise your hand for your spouse there, all right? There will be some situations where this isn't possible, but it's something we should strive for. There should be no one on earth, especially of the household of faith, that we hold anger or bitterness toward. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said. What did Paul tell the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter number 4, verse number 2 and 3, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love? That means to put up with each other. He said, endeavoring to keep the what? Unity of the Spirit in the bond of what? 
Well, this sounds like a bunch of snowflakes, soft, kumbaya, unity, peace. Oh, we're a bunch of hippies. It's not what I'm saying. But long before there were ever hippies, Paul was saying, let's endeavor, church at Ephesus, to keep the unity of the Spirit. Again, the unity does not come, the unity comes because of the truth of who God is and what He teaches, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? Because when that happens, the work of God can move forward in beautiful ways. And when it doesn't, have you ever been a part? I have not been, thankfully, personally. I've I've talked to people that have, I've, I've read about them, I've talked to pastors that have, a church split. You know what happens in the midst of a church split? Every time the church gathers, the whole focus is on talking about the new news. Did you hear what they did over there? Well, I can't believe that. Oh, did you find out this? Oh, I heard from so-and-so. Oh, they. And every time you get together, there is no focus on lifting him up. There is no focus on magnifying him. There is no focus on sharing the gospel. Whenever a church is going through a split, that entire season is a poisonous time where the body of Christ is weakened, where, it's, where, where it loses health, it loses strength, and it's not. You don't see churches going through a split that are having revival. You don't see it. I think, I think, Kaylee, you told me that one of the churches you grew up in had a church split. You don't see a church that's splitting going through revival. It's, it's people ba- bickering and talking badly about one another and texting and having meetings that the pastor doesn't know about, and, and then the pastor having meetings, and then the deacons, and this, and that, and so-and-so, and this, and Facebook, and, and what happens when that happens, the work of God screeches to a halt. And what does he say? He says, what does it take? It takes humility with lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering. Put up with each other, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's a biblical, worthy, Christ-honoring goal for every believer and every church family. I close with a story. It's an interesting story. In the 1700s, two of the most prominent preachers alive in those days, a man by the name of John Wesley. Anybody ever heard of John Wesley, founder of the Methodist movement? We still have Methodist churches to this day. He's the one that started that. John Wesley, that that man who traveled, we're told, more than 250,000 miles on horseback to preach an estimated 40,000 sermons. And one of the other most prominent preachers of that day was George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a little younger and a protege of Wesley's. George Whitfield was used, mightily used, to shape two continents for Christ both in Europe and in America. They met in Oxford, in England, in the early 1730s. Speaking of differences in personal preferences, we wouldn't let either of these guys preach with those kind of haircuts in our churches there. Speaking of sacred cows, I'm not, I can't even, well, I guess I could get a wig. I might go for that because I can't grow hair that long. These two started as close friends and ministry companions doing great work together for God, seeing a great revival come. At one time in, in, the, in the early to late 1730s, Whitfield referred to Wesley as my spiritual father in Christ. That's what Whitfield called Wesley. By 1739, Whitfield had been preaching to untold thousands. His ministry was booming. His ministry was people were flocking. He actually even talked about it. I got a little prideful. Flocks were, were, he was getting, people wanted autographs. People were praising him. Booklets were being written against him. But Wesley was this steady spiritual mentor in his life. And by, by 1739, Whitfield was planning to travel to America to preach to the colonists here in America, and so he left thousands of converts behind, those that he had led to Christ, under John Wesley's care. 
He said, John Wesley is my spiritual father in Christ. I want you to stay in his ministry, grow up in his ministry. Uh, Whitfield is more of what we might call an evangelist or an itinerant preacher. He was going to go, go share the gospel, kind of like a Billy Graham type of ministry where everywhere he went he was just preaching the gospel. That was Whitfield. So he comes to America. Of course, there wasn't news or social media the way that we have it now. And when Whitfield uh, returned to England two years later, he found out that and, and he knew some of this already, but their relationship would, was very, very different. They had some strongly held, Whitfield and Wesley had developed some strongly held differences on their belief of man's free will in our relationship with sin. Uh, some of what we might call today Calvinism and some of those doctrines, they had some very different beliefs on some of those things. And in that time, while Whitfield was in America, Wesley had preached and published booklets that stated his position and in turn opposed Whitfield's position. In fact, he had even sent his booklet that was definitely against the belief and preachings of Whitfield over to America. Wesley didn't have any ministry in America, but he wrote a booklet about this stuff and sent it over to America so that those that were hearing Whitfield preach would know he's wrong, don't listen to him, and he was undermining Whitfield's ministry. They began to fight. They rode against one another. In 1941, Whitfield wrote that because of Wesley's influence, listen to this, because of the things Wesley had said about him and against him, he said, many of my spiritual children will neither hear, see, nor give me the least assistance. Some of them send threatening letters that God will speedily destroy me. People that Whitfield had led to Christ and left in Wesley's ministry Whitfield said of them, some of them won't talk to me, they won't associate with me, my spiritual children, and some of them say, God's about to kill you, and we, we're glad that he is. What happened? Some sacred cows turned into a mad cow that began to poison thousands of Christians, because two godly men, two good Christian men, two wonderfully, mightily used preachers couldn't get along with each other. And it didn't just affect the two of them, it affected thousands of other believers. The controversy was fueled when Whitfield came back to England. He was invited to preach in Wesley's headquarters in London. And in that place, he preached his opposition to Wesley's teaching in what was described as the most offensive manner while John Wesley's brother Charles sat beside Whitfield fuming. Get the picture. Whitfield has, Wesley sends booklets over to America, this guy is a heretic. Whitfield comes over, and because many of those that were in that ministry did still love him, and he was well known, let's have you preach. And what did he choose to preach? He chose to preach in the most offensive manner against Wesley's teachings, while Wesley's own brother sat right there next to him in the room. After one meeting in London, Wesley wrote this. He said, Whitfield told me that he and I preach two different gospels, and therefore he would not only not join with me or give me the right hand of fellowship, but was resolved publicly to preach against me and my brother Charles wheresoever he preached at all. It reminds me a little bit there of Paul and Barnabas, who had no small dissension, the Bible said. In London, Whitfield's followers set up his tabernacle in the same street as Wesley's meeting place. It was a sad, petty, unnecessary fight between men who loved each other at one time that impacted thousands of followers with an ungodly spirit toward the other man. Now thankfully, so it was, it was men that got kind of in, in, entrenched in their own thing, and one said a hurtful thing against the other, so the other responded in kind, and then they tried to find a difference that they could say at one time. Whitfield said, you preach another gospel than me? Now, that wasn't true, and Whitfield would come to admit that that wasn't true, but his feelings got hurt, and he got, he got stirred up in pride, and I'm going to fight against this man that I one time called my spiritual father in Christ. Thankfully, 
Thankfully, they both realized the error of their ways before it was too late, and they reconciled their relationships in the 1740s and were able to have a relationship for decades after that. But you know what was interesting? There was an interesting comment following their reconciliation. One of Whitfield's followers, who obviously still held great animosity toward Wesley, he said to Whitfield, he came to him, now Whitfield and Wesley were already reconciled, but the damage had been done in many other believers. And he came to Whitfield and he said, we won't see Wesley in heaven, will we? That's what their, that's what their fight had led their followers to believe about the other. He said, well, we won't see Wesley in heaven, will we? Whitfield humbly replied, here's what he said, yes, you're right, we won't see him in heaven. He will be so close to the throne of God, and we will be so far away that we won't be able to see him. What a beautiful picture of humbling himself to a man that he had great animosity toward at one time, and that his followers, some of them still did. We're not going to see John Wesley in heaven, are we? No, probably not. He's going to be so close to the throne of God. And we're going to be so far, we probably won't see him. You know what Wesley and Whitfield learned? It wasn't worth dividing over. They needed each other. They were on the same team, preaching the same message. They were trying to do the same work against the same enemy. And they figured out, we don't need to fight over this. Whitfield eventually died first, even though he was younger. And listen to this, at Whitfield's request, Wesley preached at three memorial services held for him in London. Wesley spoke lovingly and respectfully of Whitfield and said, there are many doctrines of a less essential nature with regard to which even the most sincere children of God are and have been divided for many ages. In these we may think and let think, we may agree to disagree. You ever heard that statement? Wesley said it about his division with Whitfield some, some 400 almost years ago. Uh, 300 years ago, I guess it would be. Hurtful words had been said and damage to the cause of Christ had been done, but thankfully these two mighty spiritual giants humbled themselves and showed a biblical spirit of forgiveness, grace, maturity, and unity that would, we would all do well to follow. Is it appropriate to have strong convictions about what we believe? Yes or no, church? Absolutely yes, certainly. But we would also be wise to differentiate between the negotiable and the non-negotiable. A quote that has been attributed to many theologians for hundreds of years is fitting, says, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things charity. That is what Paul says here in Romans 14, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things charity. Know what you believe and know why you believe it and stand with Jesus was full of grace and truth. Speak the truth in love. Know what we believe. Stand with unwavering conviction for Bible truth and then resolve to handle your differences with other good Christians with grace and maturity. Don't let your sacred cow turn into a mad cow that poisons the body of Christ. Don't let the deadly disease of disunity destroy the church. Don't let the deadly disease of disunity destroy the church. Or as Paul said so well in Romans 14, for meat, destroy not the work of God. Don't let that poison of bitterness, of dissension, of discord. Paul said, I know there's people that preach against me. I know there's people that wish me ill. And you know what? If they're preaching the gospel, I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to rejoice. Praise God. They'll stand before their Heavenly Father for their motives and their actions. And you know what I'm going to do? 
I'm going to try to preach the truth everywhere I go. I'm going to try to love those that are and rejoice with those that are. And I would say all of us can apply this in different ways. For some, this might apply in our spirit toward another person or family within our church family. For others, this might apply for somebody within your extended personal family. For others, this might apply in your spirit or attitude toward another pastor or another ministry, and you've gotten your focus off of what we should be fighting for, and like those lions, you've turned on each other, and the buffalo walks away. Don't let, by the way, a sacred cow, it's okay. Paul didn't say get rid of it. We all are going to do some things a little bit differently. And, And if it's not forbidden or commanded in Scripture, if there aren't scriptural principles that guide our exact preference in that area. Give people some room for grace. Give some space and grace for those things. But what's the spirit? Recognize there's differences in the family of God are unavoidable. We're going to have some differences. And resolve to handle those with maturity and grace. And let's not allow that thing that is not bad. It wasn't bad that they ate meat, and it wasn't bad that they didn't eat meat. Let's not let that thing that isn't bad either way, based on our conscience and our liberty, let's not allow that to destroy another believer, to destroy a relationship, to destroy the work of God. Let's have the spirit that Paul tells the Roman Christians to have. Hey, don't destroy the work of God. Let's seek after peace and unity so that we can do more for the glory of God because we get to choose who we're gonna fight. We're gonna fight our enemy, we're going to fight each other. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.